Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile unlimited premium wireless. Ready to get 30 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20 20, 20 ready to get 20 20, ready to get 15 15, 15 15, just 15 bucks a month. So, give it a try at mintmobile.com/switch. $45 up front for 3 months plus taxes and fees. Promo rate for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Marie Curie, certainly one of the most famous women in the history of science. She coined the term radioactivity. She was the first woman to win a Nobel Prize, the first person to win a Nobel Prize twice, and the only person to win a Nobel Prize in two scientific fields. Not bad. She is a shining example of perseverance and of brilliance. Hello, welcome to Patented. It's a podcast all about the history of invention from History Hit with me, Dallas Campbell. I'm absolutely delighted to welcome back to the series Patricia Farah, one of our great science writers, of whom I am a massive fan. She's the Emeritus Fellow at Clare College at the University of Cambridge. And she's joining me to discuss the spellbinding life of Marie Curie, to talk about her discovery of radium and polonium and her overall contribution to science. Well, welcome back to the show. We should just get you on every week and just, you can have your own segment. <laughs> I, I, I kind of want to start with this one because I'm, I'm sure I pronounce her name wrong. I always say Marie Curie, but that can't be right, can it? I think in French it would be Marie Curie, but that's difficult to say in the middle of an English sentence. But in addition, that's not how she would refer, have referred to herself. Most of the time when she was in France, she made a great point of including her Polish name. And I can't pronounce the Polish name, so apologies to any Poles who are listening. But she would be Marie Sztodowska-Curie. I think that's pretty good. I was on YouTube doing one of those how do you pronounce names things, and I think how you just did it was pretty much it. Because I, I got the fear. I was like, oh, God. <laughs> but she's, I, here, where do we start talking about her? Because she's, kind of, she's one of these people that has just entered the realm of myth and legend. And so I never quite know what's true and what's not true. And she sort of touches lots of bases. People sort of latch onto different things about her life and sort of read into the, whatever their own thoughts about her are. 
I, th- I think that's true, but I think also the way that she's regarded has changed over time. So when I was at school and at university, I was taught to admire her as a great scientist, but I was also taught to admire her as someone who was a martyr to her science, who starved herself, who wasn't interested in her clothes, who just worked 24-7, always looked terribly lonely and miserable. And I always thought that that was rather a strange role model because I was studying physics and why on earth would I want to pursue a life where I ended up as miserable as Marie Curie? You were like into you were a rock and roller and in you were a rock and roll and <laughs> oh yeah I was a leftover hippie yeah yes. well <laughs> and and then but now when, when I think it's interesting how that's changed because if you look up Marie Curie if you feed it into Google the first entry you get long before you get to her is the cancer charity which was set up five years before she was born and when I asked my students who Marie Curie is some of them know but that she was a scientist, but some of them only associate her with the daffodil and the cancer charity. And of course, a, a charity for people who are sick is another stereotype of being a woman. It's to do with caring and loving and nurturing. So just going into Google, there's two stereotypes there immediately. And there were various others during her life as well. Let's let's start with her as a child. Let's start there, actually. Where are we? Where was she born? And tell me about her her very early life. She was born in Warsaw in Poland and she was the youngest of five children and her parents uh, were both very well educated. They were both school teachers but she was brought up in great poverty because both her parents were politically active. They'd given away all their money to support the political cause. Poland at the time was occupied by the Russians and so when she went to school she had to speak in Russian and Polish was banned but when she went home she spoke Polish with her parents so to even to speak her own language was a political activity and she was very clever she worked very hard at school then when she left she wasn't allowed to go to university in Poland because she was a woman so she and her sister joined an organization called the Floating University which was a sort of radical group an underground sort of an underground yes. thing i always thought it was the flying university but i prefer the floating perhaps university but it, it is flying no but it's probably it's, it could probably be either but actually the floating university sounds really good sounds really kind of ethereal and and I mean, it's a translation from the polish so it doesn't it doesn't matter what you call it in the way i mean the whole point <laughs> So it was a sort of university without an institution. It was an underground organisation. I don't know if an underground organisation can fly or float, but anyway, yeah, there no. it was. So, so, I mean, her education was very much from that sort of radical political background, very hostile to the Russians that were occupying the territory. Wait, Russians occupying? This sounds, this sounds terribly familiar. The Russians occupied... The Russians occupied Poland, and that was why she wasn't allowed to speak Polish at school. She had to speak Russian at school. And what, I mean, did women go to university then, or, or particularly to do science? Presumably not. Well, France was one of the very few countries that did accept women in university. And that's why Marie Curie was not alone. A lot of women, well, a fair number of women from the Eastern European countries went to Paris to, to study because they couldn't study in their own countries. So all the sort of well, all the scientists and mathematicians who were women, obviously there's not huge numbers of them, but they studied in Paris. So when she went to Paris, this sort of famous story that she was living up on the sixth floor and starving in a garret and didn't have enough food to eat, she wasn't alone in that. There was a, a large community of exiled, voluntary exiled Eastern Europeans who were living in Paris and studying, both men and women. Mm. 
And just, I mean, her mind, her father was a physicist. Is that is that where she got her love of science from? I mean, what, what was her sort of intellectual drivers? Well, I think she was a very, very determined woman. And she was, I mean, who can say where somebody's intelligence come from? She was certainly taught maths, maths and physics by both her parents. Both her parents were very well-educated school teachers. So she came from a very intellectual background. And she just became fascinated by physics. She already, uh, by the time she started her work on radioactivity, she already had a couple of degrees from Paris. She she did a PhD on magnetism in in steel. So she was a very, very gifted theoretical physicist. Although when uh, she and Pierre were working on radioactivity, she also ended up doing a huge amount of practical work as well, uh, physical, hard physical labour in the laboratory. So here we are, she's in, she's in Paris studying, she's starving in a garret. And there's all this, I mean, you mentioned it earlier on, all those stories of her sort of not eating properly and wearing sort of dowdy clothes. Is that, is that sort of accurate? Oh, I, I believe it is accurate, but I mean, a lot of people were in that position. And I think it's wrong just to focus absolutely on that. I mean, it makes the whole story so romantic to imagine her, her starving in a garret, but yeah. her sister was there. Her sister was looking after her. I mean, she, she did have enough money and she, she was hard up, but so were a lot of other students extremely hard up. Yeah. And the work that she did in the laboratory when they spent, she and Pierre spent two years sifting through uranium salts in order to extract the radium chloride that was radioactive. That was extremely, extremely hard physical labour done under very arduous conditions. Like they didn't have a nice research laboratory like they'd be provided with now. It, it, it was a very, very hard life. But I think it's a shame to focus just on that, to focus on the deprivation and the misery. I think we. you're right, though. Part, do you think why her story is so enduring is that that romantic starving in, starving in a... Paris Garrett. I mean, we talk about artists starving in Paris Garrets, and you know, if she was rich with rich patrons, it probably wouldn't have the same the same ring to it. Absolutely not. And it's um, an, an interesting comparison. I think would be Rosalind Franklin here, who's only remembered because she was a victim of male oppression by Crick and Watson. She's not remembered at all for the pioneering work she did on viruses. And then as another English example, Dorothy Hodgkin, who's the only British woman to have won a Nobel Prize. And she was phenomenally clever, phenomenally hardworking, really important scientist, and yet very few people in this country have heard of her because she hasn't got a nice romantic story to decorate her life. And I think that sort of problem is far more acute for women than for men. I think it's worth worse for scientists and for artists because most people can't understand the science, and so so they go they go for a nice sub story instead. That's a really interesting point. And you know, the area of science that she's known for is really really difficult. It's really really difficult to understand. I mean, you you mentioned that she started off her early work was on magnetism. Magnetism is really difficult to, to, to understand. And then suddenly we get the shift from magnetism through to this new, almost magical, the magical properties of, of radiation. What she discovered was pretty fundamental and hadn't, I mean, the fact that sort of radio, the, the, the way that radioactivity works, understanding the, the sort of inside of an atom, we kind of take for granted now. But but she was fundamental in, in understanding that, wasn't she? That she wasn't just, you know, she it was like hardcore physics. 
Oh, well, she was in there right at the beginning. She invented the word radioactivity. She suggested against great opposition that atoms weren't impenetrable, that radioactivity was due to something taking place inside an atom. Yeah. She started her work almost immediately after X-rays and radio and what we now call radioactivity had been discovered. And I think it's quite often the case that women end up going into a subject that nobody else was interested in. This was not mainstream physics when she started. It. This was a sort of really curious little sideline that some people had discovered, and she insisted on it, on on going into it and studying it. And I think quite a lot of women start out like that because the, the main areas are, are sort of roped off; they're, they're already being researched into. And she insisted on doing it, and her husband Pierre kept saying, "No, no, no, no! You should be doing what I'm doing." And eventually, he realised that she was right and that she was doing something far more interesting, interesting than magnetism, which is what he was doing. And he switched and came onto her research project. I mean, that idea of radioactivity at the time—we take it for granted now. Everyone, well, not everyone understands. I don't understand radioactivity really, but it kind of must have seemed almost magical at the time—the fact that you'd have these strange elements, the kind of uranium salts that would make strange pictures on photographic plates and x-rays that could see through solid matter. I mean, that must have been pretty magical at the time, the fact that nobody was really investigating it properly. I think it did seem magical. The fact that the rays are called x-rays is in itself an indication of how mysterious it was. Nobody had any idea what they were. And they were just called rays. And it was Marie Curie who showed that why it is that radioactivity happened. She showed that it comes down for breakdowns of nuclei right deep inside the atom. She coined, coined the word. And so she founded the whole science of radioactivity. And she started her work on radioactivity before Einstein introduced relativity. This, she was working right at the end of the 19th century into the 20th century. I think a lot of people, when, when we, they hear the name Marie Curie, they sort of slightly grasp for, oh, didn't she invent X-rays or didn't she? invent this that or the other her story really starts well her science story really starts with the recent discovery of x-rays doesn't it in the 18 in the middle of the 1890s within a couple of years there were two great discoveries one was uh, by a man called Röntgen, and that was of x-rays and it really hit the public attention when he published a now famous photograph of his own wife and you could see the bones of her hand and then the sort of shadows of her fingers and a wedding ring floating rather eerily, looking as though it's suspended in, in space. So that was the first X-ray when Röntgen went inside his wife's hands, very spectacular photograph. The following year, a Frenchman called Henri Becquerel discovered that uranium salts emanate some sort of strange, mysterious ray. Again, nobody knew what it was. He wrapped up some salts in a little packet of black paper. He left them on the windowsill. There was an a iron cross on top of the salts. And then when he unwrapped the photographic plate, the pattern of the cross appeared on the plate as though there'd been a photograph with light, but there hadn't been any light. It was the rays from the uranium that were causing the pattern. And these were the two mysterious phenomena that Marie Curie was determined to investigate. What was it, do you think, about that that, she, that really drew her into moving from what she was doing to investigating this further? Two reasons. One was it was obviously fundamentally important and very, very mysterious. And secondly, I imagine she was attracted 
by the absence of other people working in that field. This was something that she could go in to right from the very beginning, nobody else trying to oppose her ideas. She captured an unknown field. And in a sense, it was a kind of gamble, but she was right. It turned out to be the most important area to be researching at the time. So take us through sort of the process of of what she did in her first discovery, because she got married pretty relatively soon when when she started working in this field, didn't she? She married her research... She married her supervisor. He had invented a little an instrument called an electrometer, which measures radiation effectively in the air. And so she could use the instrument that he'd invented. And she discovered, uh, along the way, she discovered that a particular kind of uranium salt, it's crystals that are dug up, it's called pitch blend. She discovered that they were far, far, far more radioactive than they should have been, considering the amount of uranium they contained. And she decided to pursue this mystery and work out why it was that this particular salt had such a high radioactive effect. What is pitch pitch blend look like? I mean, I'm always amazed when people talk about the research work is oh we found some pitch blend like how would you know to look there like and what is it if you look it up on google it looks like a sort of very dark shiny crystal it's called it's pitch blend is a german word it's called pitch because it's black and blenden because it deceives no, nobody knows exactly what metals are inside it actually contains a very large proportion of different minerals And what she did was to take tons and tons and tons of this stuff, smash it up, boil it, distill it, get all the other stuff out of it. And the proportion was amazing. It's something like she started off with two tons of pitch blend and ended up with a tenth of a gram of uh, radium chloride. I mean, the physical work involved in that was colossal. where are we here? And like, did she have like a massive warehouse for this? Or like, how 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 does one get two tons of pitch blood? Because she's in Paris still, isn't she? She was in Paris. She was working in a small laboratory that was on the outside of the university. It was sort of like a, a large shed leaning up against the wall that had a leaking roof, and nobody else wanted to work there because in laboratory stand by laboratory standards, it was a complete and utter slum. But they hadn't got any money, and, and nobody was backing them. This was the only place that they could find to work. And they spent two years sieving all their pitch blend until they got a little tube of raging chloride. So this is her, this is her and Pierre, her husband. Yes. And so radium chloride, I've never actually seen it, but when it's in a test tube, it glows green. So it it's, was quite, that's another part of the romance to, to think that you've got this tons and tons of black mineral and you've got this dark leaky shed. And then in the middle of it, you've got this tiny test tube of radium chloride, which is green. And there's this strange, eerie radiation coming out of the test tube and glowing all over the inside of the shed. It must have been a magic moment when they first got it. We'll be back after this short break. On American History Hit, we ride the wild Oregon Trail, delve deep beneath Central Park, and fight the forgotten war of 1812. Join me, Don Wildman, and my expert guests as we uncover the stories that have shaped America in all its endless complexity. We'll follow John Wilkes Booth as he shoots President Lincoln and goes on the run. And we'll walk under the stars with Harriet Tubman as she finds her way to freedom. Follow America's story from the first Native people 
to Footprints on the Moon. On American History Hit, a podcast by History Hit, with new episodes every Monday and Thursday. Follow us wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Now's the time to save 30% on wedding jewelry. Only on bluenile.com. Make sure your wedding ring is the one with your pick of diamond and lab-grown diamond bands. All hand-finished and graded for excellence. Or surprise her with something blue she'll love for life, like a stunning pair of sapphire earrings. Blue Nile's jewelry experts are available 24-7 to help, from fit questions to style advice. Right now, get up to 30% off at BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Give them a gift they'll never forget, because they'll still have it years later. American Giant makes clothes that just keep getting better with age, like their iconic full-zip hoodie that's designed to last for decades. Because a gift they'll wear for years is a gift that keeps on giving. So be a gift-giving giant this holiday season at American-Giant.com. And get 20% off your first order when you use code GRATEFULAG23. That's 20% off your first order at American-Giant.com. Code GRATEFULAG23. You know, if you go on Amazon now, I don't think you'd be able to get two tons of pitch blend Maybe you could <laughs> on Amazon Prime, maybe like two tons of pitch blend. But I'm just trying to imagine all this stuff arriving in their shed. And, and, and you know, you're really it, it, not just doing something that's never been done before, but a type, a new physics that has never been thought before. Understanding the nucleus of an atom, which has never really been understood before. And the sort of process of going from two tons of pitch blend to a, to a test tube of green luminous stuff. I mean, that's just... I mean, it's, it sounds pretty crazy. You talked cheerfully about the concepts of a nucleus. I mean, there were a lot of people at that stage who didn't even believe that there was a nucleus. There was the prevalent model of the apple, of the atom, was what's called the plum pudding model. It's the idea that it was sort of like a, a big Christmas pudding with currants sort of stuffed into it so that it was solid. And what, after Marie Curie's experiments and all the other developments that were taking place in physics, people like Niels Bohr and Einstein, it became clear that a lot of an atom is actually empty space with a tiny little nucleus and even tinier electrons revolving around the nucleus, but rather like the solar system, an awful lot of emptiness. This is the problem with, with modern physics. It's really hard to imagine it because our imaginations, we have sort of evolved to think of Newtonian physics, really, and orbiting solar systems we can get our heads around, but it's not like that. Plum puddings we can get our heads around, but it's not like that either. It's not like that. I imagine she probably thought most people at the beginning, anyway, certainly at the beginning of the century, thought pretty much in terms of solar systems. I, mean, I think they, they did until the middle of the 20th century. I mean, to bend your head around waves of probability is really, really hard. It's much easier to think about little electrons sapping around like planets. It's fascinating. So, so she, okay, so we're in her leaky shed, surrounded by lots of crutch, crushed pitch blend, and in her hand 
is a file, a test tube of a glowing green substance, mm-hmm. magical that looks like something from Harry Potter. What, what was it? So what did she think it was? And were they excited? And did they shout Eureka? And what was the? Oh, of course, they, they were colossally, colossally excited. I mean, this was a stunning, stunning disco- discovery, and it was obvious that immediately that because it gave off such a powerful rep radiation it had very powerful medical activities and immediately it was taken over by the medical industry so it's quite ironic that as well that this woman who famously didn't care what she wore and wasn't interested in fashion spawned a whole new cosmetic industry because pretty soon commercial organizations would say well you can have toothpaste that'll make your teeth grow ni- glow nice and white in the dark and you can put it on your face it'll improve you'll have a sparkling complexion so uh, so i'm a, so this is uranium salts in this test tube is that is that what we're talking the, no the, what's the, in the test tube is radium chloride radium chloride it's a salt you. of radium and what she went on on to do later was isolate crystals of radium and she discovered two radioactive elements um, inside the inside the pitch blend. One was called radium, but the first one she discovered she called polonium, and she called it polonium after her native Poland. And although right. she never managed to isolate it, that was the first radioactive element that she discovered. And the second one was radium. I mean, you discover something like that. Did she did she understand what was going on? Did she understand how it worked? Not in the way that we do now, because there was a whole load of other physics that hadn't yet been invented. So in that sense, no, she she didn't understand, but she knew it was radium chloride and she knew that it was radioactive and she knew that there was another sort called polon- another element called polonium. So in that sense, she knew what was going on, but only within the limits of the physics of the time. Yeah. You mentioned I'm going to I'm going to sort of come into talk about Nobel prizes and such, but you mentioned the the medical industry sort of seized on this how did they know how did how do you go from gosh we found some element with magical properties we don't really understand but it glows through to gosh this is going to have medical implications well i think while they were working on it they realized very quickly that they had to be careful that their their fingers would become burnt if they handled the radiation so then it's an obvious next stop if the radiation can burn the skin off my finger perhaps it can burn the the cancer out of my body but there was a lot of experimentation and both pierre and marie curie suffered from illnesses that were caused caused by excess exposure to radiation. Her notebooks in the Sorbonne, her laboratory notebooks, have been locked away for 150 years because they're so packed with radioactivity and that nobody can look at them for another 150 years until until they've lost it all. But presumably she wouldn't have known that. She may have felt, well, it gives off heat or it burns, but this idea of radioactive decay and all that all that that entails she wouldn't have been aware of that would she and the the health hazards well she could work out about radioactive decay but what she wasn't aware of is how drastically it was affecting her own body and the same is true with pierre and pierre was chronically ill and he was he was killed in a in a street accident but it seems quite likely that he was already rather ill when that happened and so he he might not have been so fully aware when he was crossing the street exactly what he was doing when he was knocked down it's really interesting, actually. Gosh, I, it's funny because I'm, I'm just looking at an advert here and it's for an advert called Undark Radio, uh, Radium Luminous Material. So this is 
they would use it on clocks, for example, on the hands of clocks, so you could see things in the dark and switches. And and I, I think famously, there were the women who would paint the dials of aircrafts, and they would lick the brushes and dip it into the into the. No, I did that when I when I was about four. What I had mean a you did Disney. That? I, when I when I was about four, I had a Walt Disney wristwatch that glowed in the dark, and I absolutely loved it. And so I was wearing this yeah. little radioactive watch on my wrist, but the women who made that radioactive watch were putting themselves even more at risk, exactly as you say, by licking the paintbrush, and they all got cancers around their mouth. But also when I was little, the big treat of going to a shoe shop was you could stand in a special machine, an X-ray machine. I love that machine. I remember that machine. Yeah, you could look down and see. You could see all your bones wiggling. It was wonderful. <laughs> it's, I mean, thank goodness they've been banned now. <laughs> I mean, it was really, you know, as children we were exposed to radiation. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, and I, you know, and I remember that. Oh, I'm not going to go into down this rabbit hole. Do you remember those little mercury puzzles? You had a little maze and you had a little blob of mercury, and you would, and you'd you'd always open it up and poke the mercury in. Yeah, and you played with mercury at school and sort of rolled it around the table. It's <laughs> yeah. terrific fun. Good <laughs> Surprising we're still walking. <laughs> I know. And look at us, Patricia, we're still here. <laughs> look at um, us. Think how much better we would have been if we hadn't be, had know, been exactly. wiggling our toes and playing with the mercury. <laughs> so so suddenly, I guess I guess there was a kind of public consciousness of this, so this wonder material, this magical material. Nobody would have known quite how, ter- how, how sort of terrible it was just tell us about the, the Nobel she won two Nobel prizes did she get one for polonium and one for radium or what was the what was the uh, she got the that? first one the first one was actually a joint prize with Pierre Curie and uh, Henri Becquerel and initially it was going to be awarded just to Pierre Curie and to Henri Becquerel and a member of the Stockholm committee of the Nobel prize said no no this is appalling we've got to put Marie Curie in as well and so eventually it was shared between the three of them. And then after he died, she got another Nobel Prize on, on her own. For many, many years, she was the only person who to win two Nobel Prizes. How, how, and how was she thought about in her own lifetime, firstly amongst the scientific community, and then presumably she, she was making a name for herself. And she, I mean, you know, we, you talked about her, you know, living in a garret and not eating properly and wearing daddy clothes, but she was she had three great loves in her life, didn't she? She, uh, you know, the the husband that we talked about, but also others. Yes, yeah, she. I mean, she fell in, very much in love with someone a, a famous who later became a Polish mathematician. When she was just a teenager, she went to work as a governess, and in an aristocratic family, and she fell in love with this son of the family. I mean, this is another fairy story. She fell in love with the son of the family and the parents wouldn't let them marry. And she went away and was terribly depressed and was ill for a couple of years. And he apparently loved her until the end of his, his life. That's the, that's the story. But the main, the main lo- true love of her life was Pierre Curie. And that, but then after he died in a road accident, she had an affair with one of his friends called Pierre Langevin. And when that was discovered, she really was hounded by the press because she was seen as being an outsider, as being a foreigner, and the headlines were accusing her of basically being an immigrant who was destroying a a stable French family. The man, Langevin, was still married to somebody else and he had children, so in a way he was far more guilty 
victim, her, of immoral behaviour, but it was her who got lambasted by the press. And this was the time of the Dreyfus affair, so she was lambasted as being Jewish, which she wasn't. The headlines called her a Jewish whore who you know, coming coming over to our country and doing our science and taking our men. I mean, it was really, really horrible stuff. In terms of the science, in terms of her discovery of polonium and radium and really understand, understanding radioactivity, just maybe paint a picture of just how fundamental that knowledge was going forward in, in the 20th century and beyond. Oh, radioactivity completely altered the whole of the rest of the science. The idea that an atom can be broken into little bits was absolutely new. And we wouldn't have had nuclear energy, we wouldn't have had the bomb, we, all, the, all the other little particles that have been discovered, like electrons and mesons and baryons and all the rest of them that sort of make up the groundwork of physics. This was right at the very beginning of all that. That, that whole field of atomic physics, of, of nuclear physics, just hadn't been invented. So she, she was absolutely crucial for funding that. You talked right at the beginning, you sort of talked about all these different facets of her life, the way that she's portrayed in the media, the way she's thought about the the fact that people think about the cancer charity and this uh, and these sorts of things and I, i'm interested how you'd like her to be remembered if you could if you could ma- wave a magic wand and change everything how should we remember marie curie oh that's a really interesting question well i think primarily i would like to her to be remembered for the science that she did but also she's an indication of a woman She's like any other woman or like any other man. She had failings and she had strengths and she she was a human being who happened to carry out a lot of very, very high-powered science. But I think we can also, we have the right to sort of evaluate what she did just as much as any other woman who's in the public press. So I think now I would personally, I'm not sure if this is a very... Uh, commendable aspect of her personality but she took enormous interest in her children's education and although she was quite often an absent mother she for two years she ran um, a homeschooling project with all her friends so there was a little group of children in the middle of Paris who were being taught by the highest academics in the in in the French university so that and she always retained a huge fondness for everything Polish. She insisted that her children spoke Polish. She went home back regularly to Warsaw. When she went to America, she went to America twice. And the first time she raised the money, she went on an absolutely gruelling trip to raise money for a radium institute in Paris. And then a few years later, when she was very, very frail and very ill, she went back to America and she did it all over again to raise money for the institute in Warsaw. So mm. And so she, she was a very modest, unassuming person who did basically, was trying to do the best she could in the world. And it's not always easy. No. When did she die? I'm just, I'm interested in, in how much of her knowledge would have been she would have seen over the over the 20th century. Yeah, she died in 1936. And her husband, Pierre, was buried in the Pantheon in Paris, and she was buried outside. And it was only in 1995 that the French agreed that this foreign woman could be interred in their the central cemetery. Uh, cemetery, the tribute to the great people of France. And it's, it's always very annoying. If you go to Poland, to Warsaw, there's lots of streets and railway stations, banknotes and things named after her. 
in France, she's still seen as Pierre Curie's wife. So in answer to how would I like her to be recognised, I'd like her to be recognised as an independent person, as Marie Sklodowska Curie, as she wanted to be remembered herself. And someone, yes, who did have a husband, and she worked with a husband and they had different roles, but she's a very, very important independent woman in her own right, with her failings and also her more laudatory aspects. I love talking to you, Patricia. I really do. Thank you so much for coming on again. Will you come on again <laughs> and again? Honestly, I just, I, I just, you will think of something else. It's great having you. I just love. Okay, that's nice of you to say. So, I mean, I enjoy, I enjoy doing it too. <laughs> you do ask some difficult questions. <laughs> do I? <laughs> I? I get really interested in things like, you know, when you say, for example, oh, uh, Henri Dudar, who discovered... Henri Becquerel, who discovered the, the radiation of the uranium salts, yeah. I, all I had in my mind was bechamel, because I'd been doing some cooking, so not bechamel. <laughs> so, but, you know, you said, OK, well, he had some uranium salts and they were kind of wrapped up and he had an iron cross on it and, lo and behold, the, the picture of the iron... Like, was that like just by accident he had that? It just sounds... It's almost like... Oh, we had a Petri dish and then there was some penicillin in it and lo and behold, we discovered penicillin. It was a too good a story for it to be true. It is It is too too good a story. He had thought about it in advance and it's the same with Röntgen. I mean, he, he was looking for it. There's a famous saying by, I oh, was Claude Bernard, so that something like chance favours the prepared mind. So yes, the bacteria have to float... Have to float in on onto the penicillin has to float in onto the petri dish, but you have to be prepared to pick it up. And that's another myth: is that Alexander Fleming didn't do anything about it. I mean, years went by, and he never researched into into penicillin, and that's why it had to wait for Chain and Flory in the Second World World War. So, I mean, that's another, and that's a story about how wonderful everything British is, because of course Alexander Fleming was Scottish, so in Britain we have to celebrate him. And actually, there's probably loads of pet Petri dishes all over the country that nobody's well, this, done anything well, about. You, this is you make the point. Well, we love stories. Humans love stories, and this is it. The history of yeah. science is littered with stories like these, which are probably a little bit massaged and a little bit over dramatized because that's how we like to consume stories. And I think Marie Curie kind of fits into that box. Starving in her garret, she had she had these great loves of her life. She mm. revolutionized physics. She was an outsider. All these things kind of, I tell you what, I, I was watching um, Lawrence of Arabia. And again, the reason we like Lawrence of Arabia is because he fits into all of those boxes. And it's, it's, it's overly romanticized and there's probably elements of truth, but that's not what we're interested in. We love the hero's journey. We love the, the idea of solving riddles, solving myths, solving puzzles as, as an outsider against the odds. So I'll tell you an anti-romantic story. In the early 19th century, there's a man called Semmelweis, and he went into a hospital ward and he carried out an experiment that when doctors came from the operating theatre, before they walked into the maternity ward to deliver a baby, they had to wash their hands and dip them in some alcohol. And the, the neonatal and maternal death rates in the maternity ward absolutely plummeted because of that basic act of hygiene. And nobody took any notice for about 30 years. Nothing happened. So that's the sort of opposite of the serendipity story. Sort of, yeah. He was out there <laughs> yeah. saying, wash your hands. And nobody was listening. Yeah. All right, listen, we'll let you go. Go 
go and do some more beautiful writing on whatever. What are you working on at the moment? You always do fascinating stuff. Oh, well, I've just written uh, something about Frankenstein and AI. So oh, that's, that's yes. my, the latest, oh, that's the latest thing I'm thinking about. You know, that AI is going to take over the world just like Frankenstein's creature. There is. I think that there needs to be a new law. Like the longer two people in, are involved in conversation, the likelihood of uh, the conversation turning to chat GPT heightens over time. <laughs> we need some kind of graph to... So as you see, see, that's what chat, that's what AI is doing. Doing, they're already there, invading us. <laughs> They've already got us. It's not in the future. Yeah. The good news is, ChatGPT will not replace you, Patricia, because you're too good a writer. You're too good. <laughs> Thanks very much. We'll we'll see you soon. Okay. Bye bye. Thank you so much. Uh, <clears throat> thank you so much to Patricia. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed the show. If you did, you know what to do. Don't forget to tell all your friends and don't forget to hit like and subscribe and do all the other things that the algorithms like. And of course, as ever, if you've got a suggestion, a spark of inspiration, a theme, an idea you'd like us to cover, you can email us at patented at historyhit.com. Thank you very much for your company. I will see you next time. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code Buttery. Exclusions apply. See site for details. When it comes to clothes, having pieces that you can wear anywhere is a must. That's why American Giant makes clothing that fits your life seamlessly, with quality you have to feel to believe. Whether you're stocking up for any weather or picking up a special gift, you'll find an impressive selection of staples to choose from. So whether you're on the hunt for a heavyweight hoodie, a fleece jacket, or a hardworking pair of warm sweatpants, American Giant has what you're looking for. Each American Giant piece is designed to last and created with commitment to doing things better. And all their products are made right here in America. Because keeping things local ensures the kind of quality you'll feel and appreciate for years to come. Discover the American Giant difference today. Shop Wear Anywhere Closet Staples at American-Giant.com. And get 20% off your order when you use code ANYSTYLE24 at checkout. That's 20% off at American-Giant.com. Promo code ANYSTYLE24. While I still have you, very briefly, if you fancy getting all of the History Hit podcast archive and new episodes ad-free, along with hundreds of history documentaries to watch, download our app across Apple App Store, Google Play, and smart TV platforms. Follow the link in the show notes or go to historyhit.com slash subscribe. There is thousands of hours of history on there, including a documentary on science in the Middle Ages with Seb Falk, and also one with me talking about the secret history of the space race. As a patented listener, you get a special gift if you use the code patented at the checkout. You get 50% off your first three months. That's patented for 50% off your first three months. And if you're an Apple listener, you can subscribe for new ad-free podcast episodes within the Apple app.